I'm Robin Amler of IBS Intelligence. You're listening to the IBS iViews podcast. With me is Victor Baster, Chief Executive Officer of DAI Magister. We are talking about the funding landscape for fintechs. Can you just take us through what we saw happen in 2022, Victor? Because it seems like there was a slowdown. Yeah, so there was a slowdown of maybe around about 50% year on year. And what we also saw was valuations of quoted companies, fintech companies dropped typically around 60-70% from the previous year. So the two operated more or less in tandem. Uh, The challenge we all have is, you know, what is the baseline on which we look at this? The funding for fintechs generally is still very high in absolute terms. And it's certainly much higher than it was only a few years ago. But of course, once you've hit uh, a high watermark, you know, everybody references off of that. It's not just perception. I mean, it's reality. There are fewer dollars, pounds, euros around now for fintechs than a year ago. But putting it in context, you know, the thing is one has to look at funding over a five or 10 or even 15 year period for fintechs overall, because what's happening is a transformation over a chunk of a generation, frankly, a transformation of how financial services is done. And financial services, you know, the original idea was, well, one could just put together an app and distribute it out to people, etc. But there's no engineering or re-engineering being done of the entire financial system. And when you are dealing with people's money, obviously, in the movement of, of money at a high level, it takes a little longer than that. Plus, you've also had all of the legacy banks, which we know a lot about now, don't just stand still. And, you know, there is a defensive element to what the existing financial system has done. So my point is, one needs to look at funding, not just year on year, because there is less money, but just in the aggregate, we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars being poured over a five or 10 or 15 year period to fundamental digital transformation of the financial system. And we are only partway through that. Well, a lot of people have said to me, and I've said myself, more is changing in financial services in the last handful of years than in the last couple of hundred? There's an argument for that. Certainly, there's been more change in the last 10 years than the previous 50. That's for sure, if not a century or more. And the digital transformation, I think people were skeptical initially of how it would come and how quickly it would come to financial services, because, of course, you're dealing with the most sensitive thing, which is people's money for the most part. You know, if we actually step back a little bit, it has happened much more quickly than some people might have initially predicted. You know, the way that we do financial services in many uh, developed markets and in emerging markets, by the way, today is light years different than 10 years ago. Completely different. How we interact with financial services, how we all live our financial lives is completely different. Yes, it's the, the funding is down 50% year on year, but that's not going to stop the degree of transformation. And there are still huge areas, huge areas, relatively untouched. You say that even though funding's down 50%, there's still a lot of money out there. Given that there are untouched areas, what are the aims and strategies? 
some of these things are pretty well rehearsed. You know, people are now looking for profitability, looking for comp- et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But let's go a level below that. Yeah. The profile of investability has changed overall. And people tend to go into kind of the weeds of this number, that number, but the overall profile has changed. Put simply, a year or two ago, you could lose money and make up for it in growth or forecast growth at almost whatever size. So if you were 20 million revenue, but you were going to grow to 100 million within a year or two, you could tolerate losses of 20, 30 million a year in financial service. So the focus was simply how do you 5x, 10x, even when a business has reached a certain stage. Yeah, That profile is no longer being funded, certainly to the same degree. And it's being funded much more by exception today rather than with regularity a year or two ago. And so the market overall is looking for a different profile, which is a balance of growth and profitability coming sooner. So it's the shift in profile that people are looking for and willing to deploy money into that's really the the change. If we go into the atomic detail of this number, that growth rate, et cetera, it doesn't change the overall profile that's been driven by sentiment, but also been driven by by the reality. I mean, Robin, the, the reality is that businesses in financial services in too many areas have grown even more unprofitably rather than grown into profitability. That's the basic issue if I if I cut through it all. And that's become clearer. Personally, and I think many other people would agree, that there would have been this shift in profile anyway. It would have happened even if we didn't have the downturn. The difference is that there would have just been more money deployed or available for this different profile than we're seeing today. But no question it would have shifted because the reality is too many businesses grew fundamentally more unprofitably rather than profitable, you know, which is against the law of gravity. You're meant to become more profitable as you get bigger, put simply. Well, there's two things I'd say to that. And one is those of us with with grayer heads will remember the dot-com boom and the dot-com bubble and the dot-com bubble bursting. There are or have been, I felt, similarities in the energy and not necessarily misguided energy, but hopeful energy that was evinced by some fintech firms. And I saw that 20 odd years ago with dot-com firms. And the other thing is, you've used that magic word a, a few times, profitability. People, it seems to me, were forgetting that that was actually the goal, that was actually the aim, was to make money. There's been a, quote, fallacy, which there is a, a pattern recognition from what you were just talking about. What is the fallacy? And here I'm not talking about certain areas of fintech core payments infrastructure, things like that, which have a different dynamic. So I am looking at only typically consumer-oriented or small business-oriented, scale-oriented businesses, not just apps, but any manner of different financial services products. So what's the fallacy? The fallacy is that people were prepared to hold constant the cost to get the next customer and the next customer and the next customer. What we've seen is the cost to get the next customer has gone up. Now, we've seen that before in the dot-com crash 
you could get customers, but they were the next one you got was not as profitable as the last one and potentially inherently unprofitable. We saw that, by the way, Robin, in e-commerce. A lot of you know fairly broad-based e-commerce businesses found that once you get to a, beyond your fan base, which isn't 20 million, right? Once you got beyond your fan base, you could buy more customers, but they were inherently either unprofitable or less profitable than the ones you had before. If we telescope that down to at least the consumer areas of fintech, what's happening is the cost to acquire customers is going up. So the assumption was, well, it would either be held constant or go down as you got bigger. Why? Well, you're getting bigger, you're more prominent, you know, you can get more bang for the buck. And what's happened is that actually the reverse is the case. And so I can keep growing, but as I keep growing, the cost for that growth, incremental unit of growth, keeps going up. And there are a number of reasons for that, which we can talk about. One's competition. I'm not the only person trying to do it. And that is a product of what's happened with funding. A lot of people have been funded to go after more or less the same customer. Now, the thing, the reality is you or I have a certain amount of money every month that we can do things with. That hasn't really changed. So it's just that I have seven people coming after that rather than one or two people. And the other thing is then, you know, you're getting customers of lower quality that you can make less money from who are less likely to stay with you, et cetera. So the marginal customer, if you will, has become more marginal, if I put it that way. For marginal meaning the next one, more marginal meaning less valuable. The assumption when I or you raise 50 million to go do this project was that the cost might go up a little bit, but probably would not go up anywhere near the way it has. And so literally, my raising or you raising 50 million a little while ago put us on a treadmill. And that's the issue. And so what's happened, this is why I say that the downturn or the shift in the market in terms of profile would have happened anyway, is that was already becoming clear. And when you have downturns, downturns are the most acute when they are twinned with something else. The something else in a number of areas of fintech is the realization that beyond a certain stage, companies in this particular space, and there are many of those spaces, are not likely to be able to grow as quickly, profitably, as we might have first assumed. And then we have the downturn. A good example of this is buy now, pay later. I mean, it's actually a lab experiment in this. And I don't mean to focus on the worst offender, if you will, from a segment point of view, even though I will for a moment, <laughs> which is just just so we look at it, right? It's a, it's a classic case. You could finance Peloton purchases in the US, which is how the industry began in the US was financing Peloton purchases, right? But, you know, that's obviously a demographic of people who have a certain lifestyle, have a certain amount of money, blah, 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 right? Decent quality credit risk. Uh, but they are expensive clothes horses. They're expensive clothes horses. Yes. Well, that's also, that's a different point. No one's going to pass judgment on the thing itself, but it's just, you know, the uh, the business model, if I put it that way. I could finance Peloton purchases with a degree of confidence that I kind of knew who was buying them and that they could afford to pay back, et cetera. Problem comes in when I start financing people I don't know in areas I don't know. And I'm flying 
at least with one eye closed. And what happens, of course, is that those customers then become less and less valuable. And what happens after a certain period of time is that it starts showing up in the numbers, default rates, et cetera. And these businesses inherently are spending more money to acquire less and less valuable customers because they're trying to build a business to a certain degree of scale. So, so I say it's a lab experiment for a number of things, a number of other areas within fintech, but it's a pretty good example of the kinds of things that, quote, can go wrong. We would have ended up with a reset anyway in buy now, pay later. It's just that everything dropped as well, and that realization was compounded by a fall in, in market values, which is what's led us to this point in a number of areas of fintech. But it would have happened anyway. Let's look forward now then. Assume we've got it right. We've got something that works. We've got something that's been backed, that's grown. How do we monetize it? What's the exit positioning now? We talked about the fact that the listed fintech equities have, have gone down in values. So how do I monetize my fintech? Is it all about M&A? Uh, 90% it's about M&A. But 90% it's always been about M&A. If you actually look over a 20-year period, and you look at successful exits in technology broadly, 80, 90% of successful exits, when I mean people getting their money back and then making money on what on the, the, the money they've invested, 80, 90% over a period of time are M&A. IPOs are a very small proportion. They get a lot of press. And it's true that it's hard to pull off a $10 billion M&A deal. That's Fair enough. So the the top few companies inevitably will get the highest price through IPO. But successful exits, the vast majority has always been M&A. And there's another interesting point. Years ago, it used to be the case that after a company goes public, there's 70, 80% chance over a five or 10-year period as a public company that they will either acquire, be acquired merge, or in some cases, go out of business. So that M&A wheel, if you will, the M&A dynamic doesn't stop at IPO. It happens to the vast majority of companies that are public. So the answer to your question is 80 to 90% was always like a law of gravity. It just applies here to fintech one way or another. Today, there's a pressure that didn't exist a year to go to Seoul for M&A. Put simply, people find it's going to be harder to raise the next round than they thought, and they have to do contortions in order to do that, which we've seen layoffs, we've seen cutbacks, etc. So just because you think M&A might be a good idea for your business doesn't bear any relationship to actually being able to do one. It's kind of like, I want to attract a, a beautiful mate who, you know, is very eligible, et cetera. Well, you know, just waking up and saying, I just want to do that. I mean, you know, you kind of have to hit the gym and, you know, have to, you know, kind of do a few other things. Make yourself eligible. Becoming eligible is something that not enough CEOs and boards, in our view, in our experience today, are thinking about what it really takes to become eligible. There are a few laws of gravity, if you will, around that, that make it particularly important that people focus on it much earlier than when they actually do an M&A deal. Yeah? There's a preparation phase for it that is a year or a year and a half for a lot of companies, not two months. 
I think there's slowly but surely realization today, well, we may not be able to raise the next round of 100 million that we thought. Well, we better start thinking about contingency planning. What else are we going to do? Yep. But by the way, that's still not pervasive. There are an awful lot of very well-known companies that aren't yet thinking that way. You could say they have their head in the sand. You could say that they may well be able to pull something off. But it's very, very risky behavior in this day and age. So eligibility, there's a couple of, what's the most painful part of eligibility? The equivalent of hitting the gym every day, yeah, which is re-engineering the business so it can be bought. Nobody is going to acquire a fintech business that is losing more than X a year. Why? Because what they want to do is buy a business rather than buy a black hole. And many of them simply just can't afford or won't tolerate doing that. So it starts with the re-engineering, unfortunately, of a lot of these businesses so that if they're not profitable, they can be profitable in the not-too-distant future. Well, you'd say, well, you probably need to do that anyway in order to qualify to raise the next round. So you might as well do it. Fair enough. But you know, if you are thinking about an M&A deal, there may well be different metrics, different dimensions. For example, to qualify for high-quality M&A deal, strategic M&A deal, it may make sense to keep more of the technology group within a company, perhaps cut more in other areas. You might be tempted as a CEO, if you're just going for a funding round, maybe to cut across the board or cut more in technology and product or pro rata or whatever. Maybe it doesn't make sense to do that if you're going to tee the business up for M&A. So that speaks to fundamental decision-making that a company needs to do. The second thing is that people buy people they know. And a lot of fintechs have spent years making themselves the enemy. <laughs> All right? Well, let me put it another way. The insurgent, you know, the, the Hun, the whatever, the, you know, that's fine up to a point. But you also need to be acquirable. And companies that have put themselves out as the kind of as the antagonist and, you know, the legacy financial services players are the enemy, etc., isn't a great starting point to be acquired for a high price. Why? Well, because if if I'm a financial services institution, last thing I want to do is buy something that guarantees tissue rejection. <laughs> and that's what I'm going to get. So if the culture is freewheeling, antagonistic, all of that, it makes it impossible to acquire with confidence. And it makes it very difficult for me to do it. Third is that a lot of fintechs have spent very little time talking to and getting to know people in the financial services ecosystem, regulators, etc. Right? They try and avoid regulators, they try and skirt it, etc. Rather than being compliant which some of them obviously are transitioning. And they certainly don't spend very much time with who they might class as the enemy. I'm being a little extreme here. I mean, you know, high quality fintech CEOs get all of this, right? I'm not trying to caricature, but I'm just making extreme comparisons. So people buy people they know, subtext people buy people they know and like. Yes. So spending time, so part of a CEO's job description in 2023, is spending time with financial service companies who would be logical buyers of the business, them understanding over a period of time where the strategic value is in a potential deal. And so they pop the question, not you. 
nobody should put their fintech up for sale. If you want to get a strategic M&A deal done, that is a very good way to solve for a very low price. I tell this to people all the time. It's this notion of being bought, not sold. And to be bought, you want people to pop the question. For people to pop the question, you need to seed the idea. And that is something that CEOs of fintechs, particularly if they are minded towards a strategic deal, should be spending 10% or more of their time over a 12 or 18-month period because it takes time to do. I guarantee you that maybe 5% of fintech CEOs of companies above a certain size are spending 10% of their time doing that. I, I guarantee you. I can literally go through the last 50 fintech CEOs of companies of a certain size that we spent time with. You know, it's just not something that they do. Victor Basta, Chief Executive Officer of DAI Magister, thank you so much for your time.